today we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, where we get a chance to look at three kingdom parables from Jesus. So if you get your Bibles out and turn to Mark chapter 4, that's where we'll be in the Word this morning. And also, this uh, Tuesday night, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. A, a great chapter, a crucial chapter as far as our understanding of uh, being saved by grace and faith. And so we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 15 this Tuesday night. Love to have you there either on the stream or on demand throughout the week. But let's get into the word. Let's ask God to bless us today. Lord, we pray that you'd meet us here in your holy word. We thank you for it. It is an anchor for us in the storms of life. And Lord, right now, as we're so deep in the sheltering in place, we lift up our uh, community. We pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom. We pray for our church family that you would take care of us, watch over us, and even grow us, Lord, in the midst of trial. We pray for your provision, Lord God, for everyone who's being financially uh, impacted during this time. And we pray, Father, of course, for health in our community and beyond. And ultimately, Lord, that in your providence one day, through the minds that you've given to us, the creativity that you've given to us, that we'd be able to see a vaccine and, and, and a, a way for us to move forward in a healthy way. We commit that, Lord, into your hands, but we pray now, Lord, for this time in the word and ask that you would speak to us, Lord, from it. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever uh, been disappointed by unmet expectations. I remember a, a day in my childhood where I had an expectation that went unmet and I was greatly uh, disappointed. It was New Year's Day and I was probably about eight or nine years old. And I had heard that on January 1st, New Year's Day, that that was a day that was filled with tons of college football. And I loved sports. I loved football and I knew that my dad also loved college football. So I expected that he and I were going to spend the whole day watching football together, lounging on the couch, nothing on the schedule, football all day long. I remember I even took the big step of pouring a bag of potato chips into the bowl, you know, just like huge preparations that I went through to get ready for that day. But the one thing that I forgot to do was talk to my dad about this uh, ahead of time. Uh, I didn't ask him if he wanted or could spend his entire day uh, that way. I expected that he could, uh, but I never actually took the time to find out. Well, you could probably guess what happened. My dad had no idea what I was planning. And he was surprised when he found out that I expected his entire day to be spent uh, watching college football on the couch. And I was surprised that he planned to spend his entire day doing yard work. Yard work, the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. Okay, in our passage today, Jesus is going to tell us three parables. They're an extension of the first parable that we studied last week together. And each parable was told against the backdrop of the crowd's expectations of the Christ Messiah. They believed that an anointed one would come who would come with an external, powerful, militaristic, 
political and obvious kingdom. Some of them, like the zealots, tried to force that expectation on God by staging revolutions, hoping that would kickstart God's kingdom. Some of them, like the Pharisees, tried to force that expectation on God with their meticulous adherence to his laws. And all of them hoped that this outward and obvious kingdom would come as soon as possible. And like my little New Year's Day story, Jesus, when he came, did not meet their expectations. But unlike my story, he did not come to do something worse than their expectations. He did not come to do yard work, in other words. Instead, he came to exceed their expectations. And these parables that Jesus will tell today were a way for him to try to get them to rearrange their thinking about his kingdom and about how it would look. He did not want them to despise his kingdom because of their preconceived notions or expectations. He needed to show them that he was doing something better than they had ever dreamed. Okay, so today we're going to study all three of these parables, and I'll try to summarize each one. And I'm going to sprinkle into these three parables seven applicational points throughout the teaching. And so that's a lot that we're going to look at today. And so I just remind you that at nateholdridge.com, that's where my blog is. And all of these are written out in detail there. So if you miss anything, you can just go grab them there, especially if you're a note taker. I want you to get the full set. But parable number one is this. Uh, the word of Christ is not hidden. This is the basic meaning of parable number one. The word of Christ is not hidden. It says in verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone, he said in verse 23, has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, the image of this parable is a pretty easy one for us to understand. The lamps, of course, are not meant to be covered by things like baskets or beds. Uh, they're instead meant to be put on a stand. Uh, that's why we install our lighting in the ceiling, uh, not on the floor, or why we buy lampstands, or why we string up lanterns when we go camping and put them above the campsite. Uh, if we want the benefits of the light source, we cannot hide the light source. And we understand that. But the question is, what did Jesus mean by this imagery? Uh, one interesting clue is found in the way that Mark records what Jesus said, the way Mark constructed the sentence. Literally, what Mark did was personify the lamp. Uh, he used the phrase, is a lamp brought in or ask the question is a lamp brought in but literally if you were to write that out what he really said was the lamp comes or does the lamp come the coming of the lamp it's just a really weird way to talk you would never talk like that in normal everyday life someone's bringing a light in and you say here comes the lamp no you'd say here comes the person with the lamp or bring a light in here but the lamp is personified it's coming in another clue as to what jesus meant is found in the expectations of the masses at that time 
Again, they weren't expecting the Messiah to bring an invisible and spiritual kingdom, but a physical kingdom. The way Jesus came, though, appeared hidden or secret to them, especially in comparison to their expectations. So Jesus told them that everything hidden and everything secret would one day be made manifest and come to light. So it seems that Jesus was talking about himself and about his kingdom in this parable. In other words, he is the lamp that came into the world. John 12, verse 46. He's the true light which enlightens everyone. John 1, verse 9. He's the light of the world. John 8, verse 12. He came. The light has come. The light in this parable is Jesus. And although Jesus is portrayed in Mark as silencing people, remember this, he's always silencing crowds or silencing demons or silencing people that he's healed. This parable shows us that one day he would be shouted from the rooftops. He would not ask his people to be silent forever. One day he'd be made manifest. He would come to light. Even these parables that were designed at least for a little moment to keep him mysterious would one day be known by everyone. The Jesus secret would be revealed. He would be widely broadcast by his people. The gospel would be preached. And one day the church would plainly declare the message of Jesus. The first application I want to give you is this. Application number one, believe his message can be known. Believe his message can be known. You see, too many believers have spent too much time thinking that Jesus and his message are mysteries that cannot be known. People like this see the Bible as a wasteland of unknowable doctrines, describing an unattainable Christian life. They search for a deeper life and are convinced that most Christians don't get it or can't attain to it. But Jesus, he can and should be known. His message is manifest and in the light. You can know him in his word. Stop thinking that he and his word are too mysterious for you to know. I remember being in high school and what it felt like when I would walk by the classroom where the calculus and trigonometry classes were held. You know, that was never gonna be my particular path. I had no desire to go beyond algebra two in my high school mathematic career. And whenever I walked by those classes, I can still remember what it felt like. I felt like I was looking in on a class full of superheroes with miraculous supernatural abilities, abilities and superpowers that I would never have. They understood the deep mysteries of mathematics, things that I would never comprehend. And, you know, to be honest with you, still in life, I've proved that I'm right. I still don't understand those mathematical complexities. But that's not the way it is with the Bible and with Jesus. We live in an era where his message has been revealed. He and his word are knowable to his people. Uh, does, does it take some work to understand? Sure. Can you grow to know him and his word more? Absolutely. Are some people gifted to discern and explain the scripture? Yeah. But the point is that the indestructible truth of Jesus Christ 
can be known. And we must believe that this is true or else we won't press in to study his word and know him more. There's a second application I want to bring to you today. Application number two, we must broadcast Jesus. Broadcast Jesus. You know, if Jesus is likened to the lamp that came to illuminate a room, then he must be broadcast today. In another place, Jesus said things like this. Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And in Matthew 5, verse 16, a couple verses later, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, we have the greatest message the world has ever known. And I know that it's easy to believe sometimes that no one wants to hear it, but I believe that there are people that are groping for the truth. The Spirit is producing a thirst inside of them, maybe even during this season that we're in today. And we have the good news, which will generate living water from their hearts. Recently, Christina showed me a, a video that she came across online, and it was of a couple that uh, the, the husband, he just couldn't wait to tell this joke that he had learned to his wife. So they called each other via a video chat and they recorded it somehow. He was in his car. She was at home with this straight faced look on her, on her face. Like she's not interested in this joke at all. And he's like cracking up, dying because of this joke before he even tells it. He just can't wait to tell her this joke. He said, what's the difference between Dubai and Abu Dhabi? Uh, she just said, I give up. I don't know. What's the difference? And he just couldn't hold it together. He's giggling like a little schoolgirl. And then finally, he ekes it out. And he says, Dubai does not like the Flintstones, but Abu Dhabi do. <laughs> it's terrible. Kids, ask your parents if you don't understand that joke. But I laughed so hard not because of the joke, but because of the guy and the way that he just couldn't wait to deliver this material. And I'm sure we've all had experiences like that. Times where we couldn't wait to tell a good joke or share good news or celebrate a new blessing in life. And perhaps that same spirit should fill our hearts when it comes to the message of Jesus in a fresh way. We have the cure to what ails humanity. And though it has hurdles because it's offensive and controversial to many, we love the message of the gospel. It must be broadcast. I'd encourage you to go back if you haven't already and, and watch our recent training forum discussion that we held on evangelism in our current crisis moment. It was a good teaching and a good conversation. And perhaps it will spark some thoughts to help you broadcast Jesus during this time. Okay, but let's keep moving in our passage. Before we go to the second parable, uh, we need to see something that Jesus added to the first parable that we're looking at today. So let's read verse 24 and 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, here Jesus tells everyone that they need to hear what he's saying really well. Remember the fourth soil from last week? 
You know, Jesus said that they were the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, Jesus encourages everyone to be like that good fourth soil. He says things like pay attention and hear and use the word. Okay, this is part of the reason that we seek uh, to ask applicational questions of each passage of the Bible that we're in. We want to use the word that he gives us. We want to respond to the scripture. And Jesus said that when we use the word in verse 24, it will be measured to us and still more will be added to us. The one who has to him, more will be given in verse 25. In other words, when you use the word, you will continue to grow in the word. When you apply the truth of the kingdom, you do what he's asking you to do, you get to experience even more of the kingdom. And there's a warning also. He said there in verse 25, the one who uh, has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, to reject the word of Christ and his kingdom leads to even greater darkness in a person's life. This leads me to application number three in our passage today. Use the word and receive more. Use the word and receive more. You see here, Jesus is alluding to the principle of spiritual momentum. You see, the Christian life is really never run on flat ground. If you're following him, one lesson begets another lesson. And one truth needs, leads to another truth. And growth can be fairly rapid. It's like running downhill in a sense. But when we're slothful in our allegiance, when our engagement with his word is haphazard or infrequent, our growth declines. It's like running uphill. You know, many of us have seen this spiritual principle exemplified in our physical fitness. You know, you know what it's like. You go to the gym three days a week. And it often produces a desire to go again. You start feeling good. You start feeling healthy. And it's no biggie to stay in that regular routine. You have momentum. But then you get sick or you go on vacation or you have Thanksgiving dinner or you eat a carton of ice cream for three nights in a row and momentum begins to wane. You get tired too quickly. Pretty soon, just putting on your workout clothes is a really big deal. In other words, what we need to do is catch the wave. As we take in the message of Jesus, we get more from Jesus. He said, more will be added to you. More will be given. Believe him by applying the truth he delivers. And watch how he gives you more understanding and insight than ever before. Okay, that's the first parable. Let's move on to the second parable, which I think teaches us that the word of Christ will produce a harvest, that the word of Christ will produce a harvest. Let's read it together in verse 26 to 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Okay, this little parable is only found here in Mark's gospel. Uh, in it, the seed shows up again. Remember the seed from last week's parable? 
And the seed here is a picture of the kingdom of God. Slowly but surely, the seed sprouts and grows until a harvest comes. Okay, it's a fascinating way for Jesus to describe the coming of God's kingdom. It's not really very majestic imagery. You know, he doesn't compare the kingdom to the magnificence of a mountain range or the beauty of the dawn or the power of an animal like a lion. Instead, he says the kingdom, it's like a seed. Uh, almost anonymously, quietly, secretly, it goes into the ground. But over time, a harvest comes from that seed. One seed has the power of generations of orchards inside it. And that's what the seed of the kingdom is like. Okay, what does this mean? Well, consider the cross of Jesus. You know, he died on a Roman cross outside the attention of the vast majority of humanity. He was flanked by robbers as he died in relative anonymity. It seemed that any moment he was going to lead, or any movement he was going to lead, was now dead in the water. Barely anyone on earth knew his name. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, there was no angelic choir in the sky. It was an anonymous event. But the seed of that moment turned into the greatest movement in history. Just as a seed sprouts out of the ground, Jesus came out of the grave. New life is found in him. The quiet, obscure, out-of-the-way death of Jesus was actually the event that saved humanity. And now billions know his name. He has produced a massive harvest of souls. This leads to a fourth application. Be patient for God's kingdom. Be patient for God's kingdom. You see, the kingdom is growing and building, according to this parable. A harvest is coming. When Jesus said it produces by itself, uh, he used a word from which our word automatic comes. Though the growth of the kingdom is sometimes hard to see, it's automatic. Though the growth of the kingdom is often slow, it's automatic. Though the growth of the kingdom seems impossible, it's automatic. It is imperceptible, constant, and inevitable. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are guaranteed it will come. One of my favorite toys that my kids ever owned was this elaborate marble tower. I loved playing with that toy. It was so fun. And we get all the chutes and the funnels and uh, the spinny, you know, drops. We'd get it all set up. And then we'd drop in the first marble to test out our run. You know, the question was, would it make it all the way down to the very bottom? Jesus, he inaugurated the kingdom. His death and resurrection provided the drop of the marble. It's rolling and rolling and rolling. And one day the full harvest will come. God will put in his sickle and this humble kingdom will become a glorious and external kingdom. You see, as believers, this parable should encourage us to patiently hope for God's kingdom to come. Sometimes it feels like no one's listening, like no one wants Jesus, and no one's being added to the kingdom. But this is untrue, 
And God's kingdom is building and growing almost imperceptibly to the point that it becomes the final harvest. So let's wait for it well. But this leads me also to a fifth application today. We must keep putting the word in. Keep putting the word in. You see, Jesus said that the seed, it does this imperceptible work. Remember in his first parable, he said that the sower sows the word. And in this parable, we learn that the seed does a long-range work in the universe, but also in us as individuals. Slowly and surely and steadily, the word is working and producing fruit in those who have received its truth. You see, as you continue to put the word in, into your life, good things will flow from your life. Uh, this is not a hard concept for us, you know, to understand. We can compare it as an example to, to what we eat, to what we consume. You know, I have no idea what a calorie looks like. I don't know what a fat looks like, what a protein looks like. I have no idea what a carbohydrate looks like, but I do know what they look like after I eat them, what they look like on me. And I can see those effects all in my body. What I put in has a way of manifesting itself. And in the wonderful and gracious plan of God, we can slowly grow as we allow the seed of his word to have its way in us. And God isn't looking for some rapid or artificial growth. Steadily, slowly, almost imperceptibly, he's using his word to shape and mold us into the image of Christ. It might take decades, but he is working a harvest in us. All right, let's look at our third and final paragraph or uh, parable today. I think this uh, last parable communicates to us that the word of Christ started small, but will end massive. Started small, but will end massive. Verse 30 to verse 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, they considered the mustard seed the smallest of the seeds that they would put in their gardens. That was kind of a proverb that they would tell. The mustard seed was so small, in other words, yet it became large with large branches that shot out from it. And Jesus said that the kingdom of God uh, could be compared to the mustard seed and the plant it produces. Though the kingdom had a small and anonymous kind of start, with a carpenter's son there in northern Israel, it would branch out into the whole world. Okay, this leads me to a sixth application. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. I borrow that phrase from the book of Zechariah. You know, during Zechariah's day, some people were tempted to despise the small things of their rebuilding effort of the temple and of Jerusalem. It seemed like a small work 
But God didn't want them to despise that small work because it was a good work that led, led to so much more in the future. Okay, in a similar way, when it comes to God's kingdom, we should not despise the day of small things. Slow growth in a church or little church plants or brand new ministries. They can all be examples of small things that God is going to do a powerful work through. So just as the ancient multitudes Jesus taught should not have despised the humble beginnings of Jesus's kingdom, so we also should not despise the small things in God's kingdom today. Okay, but in this parable, Jesus also mentioned the birds of the air nesting in the shade of the tree. Okay, what's the meaning of this part of the parable? Okay, well, some people see the birds as a reference to the nations that would eventually come into the kingdom. And there are some great Old Testament passages that point to God's kingdom eventually expanding to the entire Gentile world. Okay, this is a solid and compelling interpretation. That's one option. A second option is that uh, from those who think that the birds have no significance, it's just sort of a, an illustrative technique that Jesus is using. They have no significance in the parable. Uh, but I doubt this particular line of thinking. And the third line of thinking uh, considers how the original parable gave us a clue about the bird's identity. Remember the first soil where the seed was sown on the path in last week's parable? Jesus said in Mark 4 verse 15, and these are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And in that parable, it was the birds that came and took away the seed. And Jesus interpreted that as Satan taking away the word. Furthermore, when Jesus explained the first parable, he said, and do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Okay, so... In this line of interpretation, since the birds were representatives of Satan in that first parable, and since Jesus said that understanding the first parable would help you understand all the parables, some have concluded that the birds in this current parable are bad. Uh, for people who hold this interpretation, though the church will undergo rapid growth, and expansion over the years, though it will reach into all different nations and tribes and languages, it's also apparently going to house some pretty weird stuff. Okay, that weird stuff isn't part of the real church, but it pretends to be part of the real church. Personally, I think the history of the church bears this particular idea out. Odd things that are done in the name of of Jesus. I mean, can anybody say Branch Davidian? So weird, like birds resting in the branches or so, of something that they're not part of, they aren't part of the church. Okay, as much as I would like this parable to only indicate beautiful, radical, multinational growth of the kingdom, and as much as those themes are expressed elsewhere in scripture, I do tend to see the birds as something negative and attached to, the attached to the ultimate expansion of the kingdom. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to break fellowship with somebody who holds another view, but it is the one that I lean towards. 
Okay, this leads me to a seventh application. We must grow in discernment. We must grow in discernment. You see, if this parable indicates that odd and unbiblical factors will attach themselves to the church over the years, then we must grow in discernment. You see, not everything that claims to be biblical or appropriate for the church is so. And not everything that sounds right is right. We do not gain discernment from Oprah or Facebook or from within. We grow in discernment as we grow in the Word of God and interact with those who have done the same. In fact, just this last week, I finished a great book by a pastor and scholar named Jared Wilson called The Gospel According to Satan. I'm actually going to recommend it this week on my May update on my blog. And he just listed eight lies that Satan loves to preach. And they just, all eight of them sound kind of true and are often found uttered by the mouths of believers. But we must be more discerning. Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. From, from that phrase or that word from Paul, the question we would ask is, is there anything that can help us, of, uh, help us gain discernment? You know, if we're swimming around in this world, if our televisions and phones and tablets and billboards and feeds are all trying to disciple us, do we have any hope? If our every conversation and classroom has an angle, how could we possibly ab avoid world confirmation? All of it seems so inevitable. But Paul says that we must be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This is our aid, mind transformation. We are not to be conformed, but to allow our minds to be transformed. So how does this transformation occur? Well, basically, it happens through interaction with the Word of God, interaction with the Bible. It's by learning and reading and studying and applying the Word of God to our lives that we'll be able to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3 verse 10. You know, if you want to think like God, you must study how God thinks as he reveals it in his word. This is a major reason why we have this as a pillar in our church, the teaching of the word of God as we dig into both testaments. God reveals himself to us in his word. Now, Mark concludes this section in verse 33 and 34 by saying, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Mark only gave us four of the 39 parables that are recorded uh, in the Gospels. Uh, he mostly focused on Jesus's actions, not on Jesus's words. There's really only two chapters that are filled with Jesus's teaching in the book of Mark. Uh, but these four parables that we looked at gave us a great sense of how Jesus taught. And the thrust of his teaching has been simple. Ten times in the last two weeks, we've heard Jesus use the word hear. We must hear him. We must hear his word. We must hear what his kingdom is really all about. 
And if we don't, our expectations of him will go unmet. But if we do hear him, he will go beyond our wildest dreams. Okay, let's conclude with some application questions. And again, I would just remind you, these are all available on my blog. So don't stress it if you don't get them all written down as they're presented to you on the lower part of the screen. Number one, have you had the thought that God's word is unknowable in any way? Yeah, that's a great question to just really ask because as long as that lie is there, you know, in your mind or heart, thinking that God's word is unknowable, it can't be discerned, it can't be generally understood, as long as you think that way, you're gonna have a very hard time pressing into God's word. We have so many great resources at our disposal. I mean, just this last week, I came to the church office and took one great commentary on every single book in the New Testament home to my house to put on our family bookshelf so that my kids could have that in the years to come. That Every single book in the New Testament where someone solid and scholarly has written about that book of the Bible. There are great resources out there to help us understand God's word. Number two, who is the one person that you would like to see God bring to salvation? You know, I talked about um, Jesus and how we need to broadcast him. But sometimes I think we get real big picture with that and we wonder, how can we do that, you know, for the whole world? But maybe we just need to think about that one person we would most like to see know Jesus and begin fervently and earnestly joining together with brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for that person. Number three, in your online and in-person interactions, do you often consider that you are a representative for Jesus? You know, do, you, do you consider that in your interactions as you're kind of evangelizing or sharing Jesus with the world? Are, are you considering that things that you post or things that you say, you are Jesus's representative here on earth? Number four, how does waiting for Christ's kingdom look to you? That's a good thing to wrestle with. We're to wait with hope for Christ's kingdom to come, but what does that look like for you? Number five, is there anything that you've been afraid to attempt for God because you thought it might be too small? You know, we live in an age where people love to do the grandiose, you know, that things are noticeable. How many likes and, and how, how many uh, views and, and, and all of that. But the reality is there are things that no one will know about that we should do in obedience to the Lord. So is there anything that you've been afraid to attempt for God because you thought it might be too small? And number six, and lastly, considering discernment and the need for it, what website or social media app do you visit most often? Just consider that. What website, what social media app do you visit most oft often? And just, I'd say it like this. Remember, they are trying to disciple you. They're trying to get ideas into your mind and into your heart. So just approach them with great discernment in Christ.